Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Crispy and Emmert has over 12 years experience in all stages of UX, from strategy and conception through consulting, production, and implementation. She's worked for award-winning agencies in Canada and Australia, and also worked for some of the world's top brands, including Facebook, the NFL, Microsoft, Thomson Reuters, ING, and Toyota. She's currently serving as the Director of Education for the Information Architecture Institute. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Welcome to UX Radio. I'm Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. Today we are speaking with Crispian Emmert. We're really excited to have her on the show. She is a UX researcher at Facebook and has a ton of impressive experience. So let's just jump into it. How are you doing today, Crispian? Hi, guys. Doing fantastic. Wonderful. I heard that you are taking on World IA Day for San Francisco. Do you want to tell (laughs) us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been running World IA Day in Vancouver for the past two years, which is my hometown. And I recently got this job offer at Facebook. And uh, I connected with the World IA Day people here in San Francisco, inquired about co-organizing, And as soon as I offered to do that, the co-organizer said, actually, can you just take on the whole thing? Typical. (laughs) And I said, okay, yeah, sure. But um, I don't really know anybody here because I just moved in. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know people uh, working in user experience and user research uh, in my my new home of the Bay Area. For the listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about World IA Day? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's an it's initiative that was actually thought up by um, Abby Covert. And what I love best about World IA Day, it's a one-day event that happens uh, all around the world. So we have participating cities, you know, from Europe and from Asia and from all over North America and even Latin America. And on one day of the year, this year, February 23rd, we put on an event that spreads the word about information architecture. So it's World Information Architecture Day. um, And each year we have a different theme. And so last year's was about designing for good. uh, And this year's I'm really excited about designing for difference. So how can we make a difference as user experience professionals in the work we do? Wow, that's great. You're actually on the board of the IA Institute, is that right? Yes, I'm on the board as uh, Director of Education. And so uh, one of the things that we're really keen to do is get more students involved and spread the word in uh, the various universities that are offering uh, either direct or tangential uh, programs of study to information architecture. So uh, the traditional avenues to get into information architecture would include information science and library science. Um, But of course, um, there's a lot more uh, avenues to get into this field. Uh, And I myself uh, was teaching in Vancouver at the Vancouver Film School, where uh, where the, the program of study was creating interactive applications. And to me, that just seems like a very natural place to teach information architecture. Definitely. And I'm curious, as director of education, what is your highest priority? What is the one thing that you want to get done uh, while you're on the board? 
the the immediate uh, challenge is now that the IA Institute is putting on the IA conference, formerly known as IA Summit, uh, in in 2019 in Orlando, Florida. Uh, t- top of mind for me is definitely the scholarship program that we're putting into place. Uh, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to open up accessibility into this field of information architecture in general, but into accessing the IA conference in, uh, specifically uh, for, uh, for people who traditionally may not have felt uh, like they could get in. And so we're, we're opening up a scholarship program to uh, people of diverse background, and we're offering uh, a $2,500 scholarship, and that would include airfare to the conference from uh, whichever city uh, you're at. It'll include your conference ticket. Um, it includes all kinds of wonderful events that the organizers and um, some of the main speakers at the conference uh Uh, would put on specifically for these scholarship students. Uh, For example, we had a a wonderful welcoming event for for the students last year. Um, So we're in the process of of organizing that right now. Uh, And I'm really excited about what we'll be able to offer. So we're actually looking for sponsorship opportunities. So anybody listening out there, uh, (laughs) if you go to the IA Institute, you'll see... uh, where you could sponsor uh, a student in order for them to take part in this conference. Right, that's a great idea. For those of the listeners who don't know, uh, the Information Architecture Summit, or now the Information Architecture Conference, is one of the longest running. In fact, some people believe it might be the first actual UX conference uh, that, that took place. Um, people who are not necessarily information architects might pass it by, but I wanna just say strongly, uh, I want to strongly recommend that you check it out, the IA conference uh, this year. It's a great place to meet very senior uh, practitioners in the field, many of whom have been getting together at this conference for uh, 20 years. Yes, and it's always really difficult to decide which track to attend because there are so many talented speakers and I always come away just so amazed and inspired um, by what I've learned in just a short time. So just to get back to what you just said, Crispy, and any students in particular who might be listening to this podcast, please reach out uh, and get connected to the IA Institute and, uh, and check out their programs. Absolutely. And if you go to the website, we're just in the process of making, uh, making our website on the uh, IA Institute page, but there will be information about how you could apply for the scholarship. And so we welcome people from a broad range of backgrounds. Uh, so don't feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not specifically studying information architecture. I can't apply for this scholarship. Um, if you're studying anything at all that would lead into designing information, interactive systems, then you're definitely qualified. So I encourage you to try. So Crispian, I'm so curious about your background and how you got into this field. Can you tell us a little bit about that? (laughs) Absolutely. I'm laughing because uh, I just recently joined Facebook at the, uh, uh, with, uh, with all the user experience researchers that are there. And all of my colleagues have at least one PhD usually two. I'm completely self-taught. And the reason for that is I'm a lot older than most of my colleagues. So 
uh, the internet didn't even become a thing until I was well into my 30s. And previous to my 30s, I had sort of moved around from job to job. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was feeling kind of I was feeling kind of down. I hadn't really felt uh, like I found my niche in life. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Tried a bunch of different things. Nothing really stuck. Uh, and then the internet was a thing. And as soon as I, I became aware of the internet, I was reading about it in science magazines. I knew that was exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And I've never looked back. Ever since that day, I, um, I'm completely self-taught. So I grabbed every book I could find. Uh, back then about, you know, designing for the World Wide Web and multimedia. I started coding, hand coding uh, web pages back in the 90s. So hand coding HTML. Um, I love getting together with other really senior people because we can reminisce about things like the single pixel GIF trick that we would have to use in order to, to place... <laughs> to place uh, images. Uh, we would have to do all of our formatting within tables. Uh, the content and the formatting back then was so enmeshed, you couldn't separate them. There was no such thing as CSS back then. And so we had to resort to all kinds of um, tricks. It was really, it was really the Wild West <laughs> back then. Well, now I know what we can talk about the next time we see each other in person, Crispy, and I love the single pixel gift trick. <laughs> so you know it too. I do. David Siegel, yes. I believe, was his name, who, who invented that, <laughs> the designer who invented that. Well, bless his heart, because otherwise it was so hard to get your images placed correctly. <laughs> I know. Anyone who complains about CSS gets one of those, like, back in my day uh, talks for me. Oh, I just, as soon as people complain about CSS, I tell people to get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I want to pull us back to the struggle a little bit. That is a timeless struggle within UX. Uh, it's a conversation that's been going on, as you said, for well over a decade. And I'm kind of curious from your personal perspective, if you were giving advice to a UX researcher, uh, what tactics uh, have you found useful uh, or effective in terms of justifying the need for research? Yeah, absolutely. I love giving talks on this subject. And so uh, my biggest advice is that quite often when you're getting started in the industry, it's really easy to become frustrated. And it's really easy to start, uh, to start having kind of an adversarial conversation with stakeholders. And so what I learned over the years is that if you can turn that adversarial conversation into more of an educational conversation, it really helps out. And it helps out because rather than positioning you as a, you know, troublesome, <laughs> irksome uh, voice piping up, you actually start to position yourself as somebody with expertise in your field. And it, 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 it actually opens up avenues of communication so that you could achieve your goal a lot easier than if you're just complaining and saying, no, stakeholder, you don't understand. Like, how could you be so stupid? You need this user research. So as you can tell, that probably doesn't work as well as, well, um, as a matter of fact, um, I've been working in this field for a long time. Or if you're just starting off, you could say, as a matter of fact, um, I've been getting a lot, you know, the trends in education and the trends in user experience are really strongly pushing towards doing this type of research 
And using it as an educational opportunity um, has really worked out well. So recently you spoke at UX New Zealand about this very topic and about why UX is valuable in sort of overcoming um, some of those hurdles. What were some of the comments that you received about that talk? Yeah, that was such a fantastic opportunity. And it came out of the blue, really. So I was just, you know, sitting in my sitting in my apartment in Vancouver uh, and an email comes in. Um, and I, I believe the subject of the email was, in all caps, an outrageous proposition. <laughs> and I recognized who it's from because I'd been, I'd been uh, working with um, Optimal Workshop, whose products I think are really fantastic, especially the Optimal Sort for Information Architects. So I, I recognized some of the, you know, the names uh, from the email. And out of the blue, they said, um, one of our international speakers couldn't make it. And I know it's short notice. It's only three weeks or something. <laughs> Do you want to come down to New Zealand and speak? And I'm like, heck, yes. So I grabbed the opportunity, uh, hopped on a plane. And, and my timing, my work timing was such that I had to basically jump on an airplane. And as soon as I got off the airplane, go and talk at the conference. <laughs> So it's definitely a, felt like a rock star moment, <laughs> just in, in terms of disorientation and uh, just the sense of unreality. Um, but it's it's a topic that I feel really strongly about. I really love um, helping people getting into this field, uh, getting them getting them a foot up, and giving them all the advice uh, that I could give. Uh, so I gave my talk and afterwards, yeah, the, the reception of, uh, was really great. People said, oh, it's my favorite talk of the conference. Um, I really got some great advice. Uh, and it was really gratifying. The people who, uh, who live and work in New Zealand, I've got to say, are some really fantastic people. Super nice. Uh, it's another thumbs up from us on Optimal Sort. We, we love that tool and that, and that company. Um, so you mentioned uh, previously uh, that... I think avoiding the adversarial relationship is super important as a, as a UX person. Do you have any other tips, uh, maybe from the talks that you've given for people who are looking to sort of leverage themselves more powerfully inside of their organizations? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, the strongest themes in, in any talk I give for people starting off is to, to shift, your, shift your thinking away from just uh, just providing the decorative services. And so the metaphor that I often use is, is think of yourself as an architect. <laughs> and now we're, we're moving into you know, the built space here. But if you, if you think about what an, what an architect provides in terms of you know, if we're designing a cathedral or, or if we're designing a skyscraper or a shopping mall, you really wanna be the architect and not the interior designer. Because uh, if you just position yourself as a, a UX designer uh, and everybody thinks you're just going to make the interface pretty, then what's going to happen is everybody's going to make decisions about the strategy. They're going to make decisions about how the thing behaves, the shape of it. And all of these important decisions are going to be made before you ever get a chance to get on that project. And so I'm, I'm strongly encouraging our younger, uh, our younger professionals getting into the field to really delve into the disciplines that, that help provide a more strategic approach. And so that starts off at the foundation, uh, which is understanding people, and that's your UX research. 
And then when you take that understanding and you're organizing the information logically and, and making the shape of it so that it's useful and helps people accomplish their tasks, that's where information architecture comes in. And then on top of that foundation, then we have uh, the more structural and the more aesthetic considerations. But the thing is, is that the aesthetic considerations are so fun and they're so sexy and everybody loves them. So everybody focuses on that. And that's, <laughs> that's really where the fun, the fun of designing, you know, a lot of our interactive applications are. Uh, but if you if you're not careful, then you're going to just be um, sort of pigeonholed and thought of as a purely decorative aesthetic kind of addition to the project. And that to me, um, it could signal a lot of danger because we don't want those uh, strategic decisions to be made by people who don't understand the user's wants, goals, needs or motivations. And we don't want the decisions to be made by people whose primary focus is the technical feasibility or the business viability. And they're not considering um, how the user would move through the space or what those users' uh, goals or needs are. And so that's where I, I encourage people to focus their energies. I wonder what is a specific example you might have in your experience where you changed that mindset and your own behavior and you really saw that breakthrough with stakeholders. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I took a job uh, down in Australia, um, in Sydney, Australia, uh, Australia's biggest user experience consulting firm um, hired me down in 2008 and I stayed there till 2010. And when I was down there, I learned a great deal about the kind of strategic user experience research, things like service design, things about um, cross-channel uh, design, designing cohesive experiences, omni-channel design, a lot of really strategic stuff. And so my contract there ended and I went back to my hometown of Vancouver, raring to go in that space. I was like, okay, I know so much about UX strategy. I'm going to change the world here. And then to my dismay, I realized that all the job opportunities in Vancouver um, didn't consider that kind of strategic side to user experience. So this is back in 2010, and things like service design were unknown there. Things like strategic uh, user experience, user research were basically unknown. People were still focusing over in the usability end of things. And so I had to start from scratch, and I had to... Um, I had to take on a job just as an interface designer to get my foot in the door at an organization. Um, it was called the BC Lottery Corporation. And so they hired me for a three-month contract just to design an interface. And so this is what I tell my, my junior, uh, junior uh, professionals who are trying to get in here is even if there isn't a specific job opportunity in the space where you want to work, especially in a more strategic realm. If you can get your foot in the door, there might be opportunity to, to affect some change. And so that's what I did. This three-month contract designing an interface turned into three years. And at the end of the three years, I had convinced the organization uh, of the need to go away from just uh, focusing on the interface and the aesthetics of it, which is all that they had focused on previously. And we had moved away from that, and together we had turned them into a user-centered organization that was using uh, exploratory research and understanding of the users to guide their strategic uh, decisions. Now, the way I did that 
it wasn't easy and it wasn't quick, but you've got to start somewhere. And so what happens is um, as a designer or user experience professional, you're often asked to present your designs. You're often asked to present your rationale. You get up in front of stakeholders and you say, okay, here's what I designed. And so if you're doing that without the benefit of any user research or, or the, you know, the information that you're working with has not been architected properly, you can use that presentation to just sort of open their minds to the idea that there could be a better way. So you could say something like, well, in the absence of, of actually understanding how our users really work, I've taken a stab at this. I've looked at best practices or I've looked at, you know, I've looked at uh, what others are doing. Um, but I was flagging, this is not ideal. If we actually had a, a rich understanding of our users and how they behave, I think these designs could be a lot stronger. So do you see how we can just introduce a little bit of education? We can introduce the idea of moving towards understanding the users without, without that adversarial <laughs> uh, conversation that we talked about earlier. Uh, so I had done that tons and tons of times at that organization. And every time I would present something, I'd say, you know, if we really had uh, some research. So not only doing that in the public venue where the stakeholders are attending, uh, but some more advice about how to have effect change within an organization that may not be uh, super amenable to, to the more strategic user experience activities is you also need to do a lot of what's called hallway kind of um hallway testing no not only testing but um it's it's when you're when you make friends with people and you're having these side conversations in the in the hallways i, I remember i went to a talk where, where somebody said yeah you you might affect a little bit of change at, at an organization at your presentation but you're going to affect a lot more in the hallway as you walk up to that boardroom with the people that you're chatting with so you see the difference? It's sort of when you go into the coffee room or you go into the kitchen or you're sitting with your colleagues outside of that formal presentation space is also an opportunity to, to do some education. So again, at that organization, I was always talking about the great work I had done in Australia and how we had gone out and, and studied people in the actual context of, of the behavior that we that we needed to design for, and always telling stories about how, how doing this great work had resulted in some fantastic products. And slowly, the team all around me got really excited about doing research. Uh, and then a couple months later, I got the budget and got the go-ahead to do my first research project there at, a, at an organization who had previously didn't even have a clue that that was possible. To me, it's it's a it's a really important lesson for people who are more at, at, at sort of a mid level in their career, where you've you've mastered some of the basics of how to how to do deliverables, right? You've you've mastered some of the the craft, um, but I think we've all had that experience of you've got a great insight, you've got a terrific point of view, something you believe in very strongly, and you still can't win the argument that somebody else makes a decision that goes against. Uh, something that you know to be true. Uh, and I love highlighting that importance of building a network uh, and making sure that you're communicating regularly and building relationships inside of the organization uh, as, a, as a separate sort of discipline and something you need to really focus on in order to make a bigger impact. Yeah, I think I've even noticed um, 
it takes some grassroots marketing, if you will, to reach out to the different people, the different stakeholders and influencers to get their feedback offline like you're talking about. And we have to make the effort to spend that time with them and gather that feedback, whether it's in the hallway or coffee or whatever. And that helps much better to further your cause and to tie in the UX strategy to the business strategy. Exactly. I had a colleague at Disney. I always think about this experience. I think we've all been in that uh, position of trying to explain to executives and leaders about why the, the new emerging trends in our industry are important to think about. And uh, I remember uh, we had a manager of content strategy and he was completely convinced of the, the sort of mobile revolution. This must have been 2010, uh, uh, 2009. So Disney was a little bit behind in terms of how they thought about it. And his approach was he created a presentation about responsive design and he basically went and gave that presentation to anyone in the organization who would meet with him. So individuals, teams, managers, executives, uh, and he did a roadshow with that presentation for about six months. He probably talked to 30 people uh, in the org. And what ended up happening was eventually somebody uh, brought up the idea of doing responsive design as if it was their own idea. And so it, it was sort of this inception project that he'd done to, to, to just educate his, uh, his fellow uh, employees. Exactly. And that's, that's what I ended up doing at that organization is I would put on lunch and learns about uh, how, how to do, you know, how to do professional UX or how to do great, how to design great experiences. And I would put on lunch and learns. And my first couple of lunch and learns were attended only by tumbleweeds rolling by. But I, I persevered and I kept putting them on. Uh, and sooner or later, at the at the end of uh, you know at the end of a few months of, of trying, I was actually getting a few stakeholders attending these lunch and learns. Right. You know, another important thing inside of an organization, you have to play the long game, right? Like imagine that you're convincing stakeholders over a long period of time, not you know in your first meeting. You're not convincing them by how brilliant you are. You're convincing them by being a good partner. Right. I love that idea. It's like the idea of chipping away. You're slowly chipping away. Uh, because here's the thing is you need to realize that these people are really smart. They're so smart that they're probably writing your paycheck, right? Right. <laughs> right. So, so thinking of them as dumb is not, is not productive. Uh, they're really smart people. But the, the thing is, is that quite often they'll have something like an MBA. And um, uh, up until recently, the MBAs were not, we're not even educating people of the importance of bringing design into the decisions early. Uh, so they're used to relying on things like market research and things that are outside of our realm of expertise. And therein lies the, uh, lies the potential for misunderstanding. So I love your idea of playing the long game. If, if at first you don't succeed, use it as an opportunity to try to craft your message a bit more appropriately. One of the really interesting trends uh, in the discipline in the last five years, I think, is the real differentiation of UX research uh, as, as a specific field, as a specific discipline. I, my personal thought is there's you know, so much debate, so much angst. One of the conversations we have all the time is the UI, UX 
division, right? And so like uh, you sort of you sort of framed up earlier the difference between being a decorator versus being an architect. And, and I kind of see that the role of UX research is being a, positioned a little bit more strategically. But I'm curious about like in terms of sort of like deliverables in the design process as a UX researcher, it sounds like what you're saying is your real ability to influence is in that presentation of research findings. Do you, how far do you go into design past that? Or is that really the UX researcher's role or not? Well, it depends on the size of the organization. So the, the larger the organization I've found in my experience, the more specialized division of labor occurs. And you probably saw this at Disney, <laughs> which is oh, massive. Absolutely. Huge division of labor. However, if you get hired at a startup, guess what? You're going to have to wear a dozen different hats. So it definitely depends on the size, uh, size of the organization that you're at. But working as a UX researcher, it really does make a lot of sense for you to fully understand the medium in which we're working. And so that means understanding HTML, understanding CSS, perhaps a bit of uh, JavaScript, <clears throat> understanding that so that you know the limitations of what is possible. Because quite often the, the research insights that we get, we, off, we do translate them into product recommendations. That's usually the cause and effect. It's like, okay, so we found that, you know, we interviewed 10 people and eight of them just could not figure out how to buy your product because your page is just so busy and so full of all these images. <clears throat> they didn't know which image to press to buy. And so that's the research insight. And then the recommendation would be, okay, uh, I recommend that you, you know, you create a lot more white space. I recommend that we have a clear call to action that is clearly uh, labeled as such. So you can see that there's a research insight and then there's the product recommendation. If you get the research insight, then depending on the size of the organization, you may also have to translate those insights into wireframes, wireframe it up yourself and hand that over to the visual design department. Or if it's a really small place and you are the visual designer and the front end, front end coder, uh, then you will have to translate that uh, directly into the end result yourself. Thank you, that's, that, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, one of the questions that I love to ask is, what would you like your legacy to be for this industry? That's a wonderful question. And especially now that I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a grizzled veteran and an old timer <laughs> sitting in my rocking chair here. <laughs> oh, I don't believe you. You're in a rock band after all. Oh, yeah. yeah, we actually have a gig this Friday that we're, we're preparing for. Anyone in the Bay Area come to see Bad DNA at the uh, Quarter Note Bar in Sunnyvale. <laughs> but as for legacy, I would love to be remembered as uh, somebody who inspired uh, people to get into a position of user experience where they did have more influence. It's really hard for me to meet young professionals who say, oh, I'm so frustrated. I can't, you know, I'm having difficulty uh, getting my designs across. People just treat me like a wireframe monkey. I've heard the term or that, you know, they just tell me what to do and I don't, I'm not allowed to, 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 to put my input into these designs that we're, we're building. And so it's really gratifying to hear people say, you know what, I'd learned so much from you and I especially learned how to become more strategic and become more effective as a UX professional. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. 
Thank you guys. It was an honor. Yeah, great conversation. Really appreciate it. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE dot IS.